We acknowledge the, tra the traditional owners of this country, the Turrbal, Yagara, Jagara, Ugurupal and Kwandamuka peoples and their elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. Mutual, 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 this is the mutual broadcasting system. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Vessel. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Just musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. Welcome. It's 10.08 on Thursday morning and you're listening to 4ZZZ, which means you are right here in time for the very start of another Radio Reversal show. Uh, an excellent choice on, on your part on this crisp winter morning in Brisbane. Uh, the song you just heard after Z-Lines was How You Feelin' by The Condo Crew. Um, my name is Joan, and the studio with me this morning is Max. Hello. Good day. Hey. Uh, as I kind of flagged over the last few shows, I'm um, driving the radio ship for most of July with a rotating cast of guests. So uh, this week, Max is on, and we're talking about the politics of time. Um, very deep and rich topic. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's... Uh all defining. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so the, the politics of time, I guess, to, I mean, I, I think um, maybe not entirely clear like what we mean by that. Um, so I guess what we'll be discussing over the next two hours um, has a lot to do with, you know, why we think about time in the way that we do um, and time's relationship with modernity and, and particularly industrial capitalism. We'll be going through some of that history, um, how, yeah, the, the sort of invention of, of um modern capitalist forms of labour influenced our ways of thinking about time um, and how those ways of thinking are different in, in societies where that hasn't happened. Uh, we'll be talking as well about um, political um, ways to kind of, well, more radical left-wing ways to think about time, so uh, ways to take back our time, um, to fight back against the control of our time, um, what would it mean to reclaim control over time and how has extra time historically been won. Um, and why this kind of matters in a, in a political sense. Um, do you think, is there anything else I missed there? No, that's uh, very comprehensive yeah, and good. very ambitious as well. <laughs> I, I think, know, all this in two hours. <laughs> indeed. I, I mean, I think the only thing to say is that um, uh, I think it was Althusser that said when you start, um, when things seem just like purely like common sense mm. or um, or obvious, it's when you're in the realm of ideology. Mm. And I think time's one of those interesting things where it's obviously we mark our days out uh, very strictly by when we have to go to work and, you know, setting alarms and all of these things, mm. but actually that they're deeply ideological and socially constructed um, mechanisms by which, under our current economic system, uh, our lives are uh, organised. Yeah, totally. That's, um, I think, one of our sort of missions at Radio Reversal is to dig deeper into those things that seem natural, um, and time is definitely one of these. Um, so if you would like to participate in the conversation, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can text us 0420-626-733 to request songs or let us know your thoughts, uh, or you can give us a call on 32521555 while we're playing a song, um, and we'll be happy to chat to you. We you can also get in touch via Facebook and uh, Twitter. We are Radio Reversal on all of those platforms. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into it. I guess um, the first thing to note is that time, as Max, as Max flagged before, is definitely not a natural thing. Um, like everything else we discuss here on Radio Vessel, it's 
been socially and culturally constructed to a certain extent, um, but so skillfully that we don't even think about it. Um, you know, it's hegemonic, one could say. Um, and so, as is often the case, it's instructive then to go outside of our own culture and look at how others think about certain topics, in this case, time. Um, I uh, trained as an anthropologist, so <laughs> I looked up some some anthropology anthropological literature on this. Um, uh, e. e. Evans Pritchard was an anthropologist who uh, did fieldwork with the Nuer people in South Sudan, and he even wrote about this. He was probably the first anthropologist to write, um, sort of, to really tackle this question of time, and he wrote about it in 1939. Um, I'll quote from him. He says, "The Nuer have no expression equivalent to time in our language." And they cannot, therefore, as we can, speak of time as though it were something actual, which passes, can be wasted, can be saved, and so forth. I do not think that they ever experience the same feeling of fighting against time or having to coordinate activities within an abstract passage of time, because their points of reference are mainly the activities themselves, which are generally of a leisurely character. Events follow a logical order, but they are not controlled by an abstract system, there being no autonomous points of reference to which activities have to conform with precision. Newer are fortunate. So basically what he's saying there is that time is a sort of grid against which work or anything else can be measured um, because time is the measure itself. Um, and there are often in, in kind of uh, in society, you know, pre-modern societies, um, you might say, have, have similar kind of ways of thinking about time where they say something takes, you know, two boilings of an egg or two cookings of a pot of rice or I'll be... Mm. I'll be I'll be back when the cows are being milked or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's it's a way of like thinking about time that's basically um, tied to tasks, to work, but uh, the work itself isn't, yeah, kind of try, there's no like external grid you have to try and impose those tasks onto as we often think about it. Um, so... I guess it's a. These are. There's lots of other examples um, from anthropologists in different parts of the world who who find that this this way of thinking about time is is quite common. Um, so, uh, for instance, Pierre Bourdieu explored the attitudes of time of the Kabyle peasant in Algeria, an attitude of submission and not and of nonchalant indifference to the passage of time, which no one dreams of mastering, using up, or saving. Haste is seen as a lack of decorum combined with di- diabolical ambition. The clock is sometimes known as the devil's mill. There are no precise meal times. The notion of an exact appointment is unknown. They agree only to meet at the next market. A popular song runs, it is useless to pursue the world. No one will ever overtake it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I guess, yeah, it's worth thinking about the the way in which these conceptions of time are completely divorced from our own and 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 where the break came. Obviously, when these are these are societies focused mo- mainly on um, you know you might say use value like making making objects um, you know the, the time is kind of tied to the these performance of tasks which have to be done for their own sake. Mm. Uh, when you have a society focused on exchange value, i.e., like buying and selling and particularly selling one's labour, um, you start to get a different conception of time. So I wondered if you could weigh in on that, Max. <laughs> Uh, sure. Uh, I think uh, you've got some stuff from Graeber's latest book, yeah. uh, Bullshit Jobs, yeah. uh, uh, which in which he sort of goes into the um, how the sort of early advent of capitalism in the way uh, in the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth century, mm. uh, and probably even in the sixteenth century, the rise of merchant capital and the way in the fourteenth. Fourteenth. Well, century. he's taking a lot of this from E. P. Thompson, who um, an historian who wrote an essay called "Time, Work, Discipline, and Industrial Capitalism." Right, the fourteenth century. Yeah. Well, he notes that um, kind of merchant capital in the fourteenth century were the first ones to start um, 
uh, bringing clocks into towns, for instance. And oh, God, bastards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, so essentially, um, uh, as a result, uh, one of the sort of like defining features of capitalism uh, was, or the probably one of the major defining features of capitalism is that um, you don't buy people's labour. Mm. Uh, you know, capitalists don't go along or a company doesn't go along and buy someone's labour. They buy someone's labour time, mm. uh, which is uh, sort of a distinction that was unique uh, to capitalism. And I think Graeber and sort of talks a little bit about and I think probably references E.P. Thompson around the fact that uh, previously under slavery, the concept of buying someone's time was alien. Mm. Actually, you were buying someone's body. Yeah. Uh, you you owned them permanently. They were mm. they were chattel. Um, well, he says this like a, a Greek or Roman could um, see a potter. I think is the example he uses, and mm. he can think he can conceptualize buying one of his pots, and he can, can conceptualize buying the potter himself as a slave. But it would have been totally alien to him to think about buying the potter's time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And actually, what capital does, capitalism does, or companies do, is buy exactly exactly that, someone's time. Mm. And as a result of that, one of the obviously important things that needs to occur if you're buying someone's time is a way of measuring time. Mm. Uh, and that's bringing clocks in. There was big, you know, a whole bunch of early 19th, uh, 18th and 17th and 19th century English literature talks a lot about big clocks being mm. moved into towns, big clock towers. E.P. Thompson has a lot to say about this as well. Um, mm. And he points out that the uh, whenever any group, oh, I'll just re- quote from his essay, whenever any group of workers passed into a phase of improving living standards, the acquisition of timepieces was one of the first things noted by observers. In Radcliffe's well-known account of the golden age of the Lancashire handloom weavers in the 1790s, the men had each a watch in his pocket and every house was well furnished with a clock, an elegant mahogany or fancy case. Um, and he notes as well that for 50 years of, even you know, in, in the kind of modern world in the 20th century, for 50 years of disciplined servitude to work, the enlightened employer gave to his employee an engraved gold watch. <laughs> <laughs> um, golden chains. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. And... Um, Actually, there's a, a whole bunch of sort of interesting stuff, uh, pedagogical, pedagog- pedagogical stuff around the way secondary and primary education and mm. education was sort of defined by this as well. Mm. That the factory floor was increasingly defined by set lunch breaks um, uh, and um, uh, you know big sirens and air, you know, ha- you know, uh, ways of measuring and defining when people are on work and off work and things like that. Mm. And actually, that went a long way to because the sort of rise of Education and publicly available education around, uh, was a, was developing, or it's in infant stages around that same time. It's actually interesting to think about that the schools function a lot yeah. the way like a nineteenth-century factory does. You know, there's set lunch times. There's a big bell that goes when everyone's allowed to go to lunch. Everyone has to arrive at school at eight or nine in the morning. Mm. Everyone leaves at three or three thirty. Um, uh, you know, you go into classes, you're pushed through in your years. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, grade, you're sort of a date of manufacture, you know, <laughs> you're born in 1995, 1996, you go, that's the sort of year you go through in school. Mm. Uh, and actually, um, it's amazing, actually, the way, um, again, that is a, a purely a social social and ideological construct that that's mm. the way that we define education. And it's interesting that, that the sort of underlying social relations of capitalism ended up defining a whole bunch of other things as well, mm. because, including education. And I think it's not only a reflection of the factory floor, but even the way a lot of workplaces uh, function today. Like if you have ever you know been in a, a workplace um, where I think well most of us have, where your your breaks are like strictly monitored, um, you've got to turn, you know, I've, I've 
worked certainly a lot of jobs where if I had to be at my desk at like 8.00 on the dot, um, if not 7.59. And like if I wasn't there, it would be noticed and I had exactly an hour for lunch and no more. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff. I have a friend who uh, works in an office where the new manager um, has decided that uh, they're going to have, they have to log when they go for toilet breaks wow. <laughs> and like write down exactly how long they've been on a toilet break for. And actually, if you look at some of the stuff that was going on is Amazon yes, packing factories. I was about to mention that. Like, you know, like was exactly that. Like, yeah. um, uh, well, worse, I think. They're not, they, they actually don't take bathroom breaks. They pee in bottles because they're so afraid of being accused of idling and losing their jobs. Yeah, which, I mean, brings us to the, uh, it's probably a defining point, that if time is one of the major points around which power is exercised and um, things like that, uh, obviously that that becomes a major point of contestation between wage labourers and capital Mm. and bosses and and factory owners and things like that. Mm. For a long time, time and the working week and the working day were the major points of contestation between labour and Mm, capital. Totally. And I think, uh, and there's, you know, as soon as this process which we touched on before of of bringing clocks in and starting to measure time and and hiring people, um, hiring their time uh, became a thing, then the control of that time became premium. Um, So another uh, thing that uh, David Graeber notes in his book is that workers were often forbidden from bringing clocks or watches into the factory because the boss wanted to be able to (laughs) manipulate, he wanted a factory clock that he could manipulate at will to make them work longer, basically. Um, And then another common dispute in in factories, um, industrial factories, was the practice of docking um, workers' pay by 15 minutes if they clock in even one or two minutes late. Um, And of course, people soon figured out if they were going to be docked 15 minutes, they might as well take the whole 15 minutes. So if you're running a little bit late in the morning, you just decide to take your time and get there exactly 15 minutes past (laughs) rather than clocking in early and working for free for a few minutes. Um, But in many cases, bosses would then change the the policy so that if you clocked in 15 minutes late, you were docked by 30 and so on. but yeah, I think it's it's worth thinking, um, noting the way that time became, as you said, the absolute site of, of struggle between labour and capital. Yeah, well, Marx devotes an entire chapter on the working um, working day, mm. um, uh, in fact, and uh, documents in great detail the vicious struggles between um, organised labour, well, sort of the early forms of organised labour in the early nineteenth century, um, and a whole bunch and a, a whole bunch of crucial wins over the course of that century. Mm. Uh, where Labor was able to win first the 12-hour working day uh, <laughs> wow. and and the six-day working week yeah. um, and things like that. And, you know, there was children as... In terms of the rapaciousness and uh, uh, domination of capital over people's time and lives, there was 12, even down to six-year-olds working. You know, there were laws introduced that six- and 12-year-olds had to be given at least a half-hour break between their 12-hour mm. working days, you know, and... Um, uh, in fact, it's one of the few times where Marx actually gets a little bit... Usually he's quite dispassionate in the way he analyses, but even he sort of gets quite... He has a layer of moral or ethical sort of views on mm. the ways in which people are being killed, essentially. There was thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people killed by mm. the way capitalism functioned in terms of uh, dominating, controlling people's bodies and time mm-hmm. and labour time and finding ways to eke out extra time. Mm. Um, you know, whether that be cracking down on meal breaks and forcing people to have their meal breaks on the factory floor um, and the contestations around that were really crucial. And over a period of time, organised labour was able to organ- uh, was able to wield enough power to win eventually 
you know, push back and win the te- 12 and then 10 hour uh, working day. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting. And and eventually, you eventually by the 20th century, you get the um, eight hours work, eight hours play, eight hours rest. Mm. That eight but, hours work is the only work that's uninterrupted eight hours. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Notwithstanding the unpaid labor that often women have to do at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the crucial, actually, unpaid labour that women have in reproducing capitalism, mm. by and large, there's, mm. you know, um, uh, so, the, you know, there's notwithstanding that as well. Uh, but it's very interesting, like, that um, that was understood, like, that, that fight over time was understood, A, because it gave labourers more time to organise uh, and win even more, mm. um, win even more rights and conditions and things like that, but also because they understood that, like, the, especially around the turn of the Enlightenment um, and romantic thought was that, you know, time was what you did to make your life meaningful. Mm. Like, I suppose that, like, there's a reason that people were fighting over time, not only because it gave people time to rest mm-hmm. and not die, but it also <laughs> meant that your life shouldn't be defined by drudging work. Mm. Whereas I think in the, uh, particularly in the 21st century, is we assume that work is what gives your life meaning. You know, if you don't have a career, if you don't have a proper job, then you are somehow meaningless or you don't have a purpose um, and yeah, there's that assumption that your time, like your own time, is not very is not worth very much because yeah. you're being paid for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And your and your time is your time is defined, um, your time is defined by um, how much you're paid mm. paid for it. And uh, I mean, uh, this is where there's a whole bunch of sort of intersecting and interlinking interlinking um, ideological constructs around time because also the work ethic and um, and work mm. uh, is such a crucial defining ideological construct in our society that you that as you said your worth is defined by whether or not you have paid work mm. and our everything down to the way our welfare system is designed that uh, you are sent to dodgy as like completely dodgy and useless um, employment services you have to work for the doll and that your time and that uh, time becomes a way from the preeminent way in which capitalism and the state control uh, control you mm. is a, a very an extremely effective system totally. of control if I mean I remember when I was on the doll there was the rule that you have to apply for um, I think it was uh, 20 jobs a month or something anyway however many they'd worked out so it had to be exactly one every every working day so one you know for apply for one job um, five days in the week so they were clearly trying to mirror us if you know that the principle was that looking for work should be a full-time job uh, and that ethos has infiltrated almost everything um, but maybe it's time to uh, to take a break and play a track and we'll be back to talk more and I particularly want to dive into um, the phenomena that David Graeber um, explores in his new book um, Language Warning Bullshit Jobs uh, where he talks about the new kind of form of white collar knowledge work where people are often paid to do not very much like they spend time the boss's time just sitting around kind of checking Facebook and waiting for something something to do Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that kind of paradoxical phenomena it's 10.30 exactly on Thursday morning. So you're listening to uh, Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ. Just heard uh, Bad Timing by Fantastic Furniture, uh, which is a thematic song choice because we're doing our show uh, this morning on time and the politics thereof. Uh, we got a uh, message from a listener um, before that said, the irony of sitting at home writing out applications for a job activity requirement while listening to Radio Reversal on time slash work and shitty new start requirements. <laughs> Solidarity to you. It's, Solidarity. It's, it's the hard worst. Work, hard work being unemployed. Um, and, yeah, I think uh, one of the things maybe that we can talk a little about um, either now or later is 
the sort of um, the imbalance in our kind of in our contemporary work arrangements of work where some people can't find work and um, are demonized for not being able to find work and other people are like working way too hard and working way too long there seems to be like a um, unwillingness to redistribute and in fact there's just those seems increasingly there's those two extremes yeah i mean i think and this is where i wanted to talk a little bit previously the underlying political economic relations that mean that time and labor and wage labor are, are organized in the way they are mm. and i think the first thing to say is um that the defining uh point of capitalism is the reproduction and the valorization of value mm. um and exchange value uh and and reproducing more and more value and uh, if you aren't if you sort of uh look to marx you understand that the original source of value is uh labor um and that um you know, capitalist buying labor time is the pre- is the in- is the only way that value is produced under capitalism, um, and uh, va- uh, and so the domination and control of labor time and the buying of ch- attempting to buy labor time for as cheap as possible is sort of the um, is the one of the most important things that capital always does. They'll always try to cr- push down wages. They'll always try to extend the working week. They'll always try to make you work longer for less pay. Mm. Now, um, in terms of this, in terms of then, so I suppose the sort of next question is: Well, if labour is the source of value, then why isn't everyone working? Mm. Why doesn't capitalism come along and say, "Let's grab everyone"? and put them to productive work. Mm. Uh, because if we get them in productive work, we're going to produce more value, we're going to make higher profits. Um, but one of the really important things is that there's a whole bunch of underlying contradictions in capitalism that mean that that isn't the case. Mm. Um, and we can maybe go into those uh, a little bit later, but one of those really important things to think about is um, that one of the sort of major contradictions of capitalism is uh while at the same time as labour uh, produces value, it also is one of the biggest costs. Mm. So the cost of labour is something that capitalism is always trying to reduce. And one of the other ways that you can reduce the cost of labour is automation mm. or producing or investing, as Marx called it, fixed capital mm. and, and, and advanced advancements in fixed capital. Uh, so, you know, that's building machines that, may, that mean that you don't have to hire as much labour. And one of the side effects is that is producing unemployment. Mm. Um, and we're talking a lot of, we've heard a lot about, you know, the automation taking people's jobs, but this has always been the case that capitalism in many ways um, produces a whole surplus population. population. Yeah. Uh, and that surplus population is actually really important for a number of reasons. One of the, one of the major reasons is it allows capital um, to reduce competition in the labour market. And the higher keep, the, keep wages. And down. keep wages low. Yeah. So the higher the rate of unemployment, the more the surplus labour population in the, there's a glut. Imagine labour like any other market. There's a glut on the market for people who want work. Mm. And thus that allows them to push down wages. Um, and actually one of the interesting things in Australia at the moment is actually the rate of unemployment is relatively, well, by historical standards it's very high. Unemployment in the 60s and 70s was 2 or 3%. By relative, by, by relative standards, the, the 5 or 6%, about 6% it is now is relatively low, but there's also really high rates of underemployment. Mm. Um, and... Um, and also an incredibly weak organised labour movement. Mm. Um, so there's some, in terms of um, sort of the underlying, those are some of the sort of underlying political economic relations of why um, that is the way it is. But mm. what's really interesting is um, that we were talking briefly about Newstart, mm. um, and it's the case um, that also that people want, you want to re- maintain, you want to force people to work. 
that you know you define the working class by by the means that the only thing they have to sell sell is their labor time um, and so in the early 19th and 18th century um, you saw what was called the enclosure in especially in the UK but on lots of other countries enclosure of the commons and that meant going along and finding commonly held land by peasants privatizing it essentially giving it to lords mm. um, and um, industrial early industrial agriculture and forcing a whole bunch of people into the cities mm. denying them the other ways that they reproduce themselves whether it be small crop holders and things like that and meaning that the only thing they have to sell is their time mm. it's very important then around you know our, um, implementation of new start and welfare systems that you force that a it's not high enough uh, that they can just live on that for the rest of their lives mm. but b also that you find disciplinary ways to force them to constantly look for work and mm. constantly participate in the labor market um, and so your time becomes this thing that is viciously controlled uh, that is always defined by wage labor um, and even when you're not working mm, totally um, I think in, in Inventing the Future, um, uh, which is a, a book by Nick... Uh, Shernack and Shernack, Williams. his last name I don't know how to pronounce. Nick Shernack and Alex Williams, they talk about a lot about this question of the surplus population and the way in which the the modern surplus population exists almost entirely to discipline the working class with basically the threat of, well, yeah, keeping wages low, um, installing a work ethos among everyone um, through things like work for the dole and also... And also the NDIS, I think, is a good example of this. Um, mm. We talked a little about this on the show a few weeks ago, but um, one of the major principles of the NDIS is to make people with disabilities work ready um, and to get them working. And that's, I think, a, a, a principle not talked about enough, but it's an it's another illustration of, of this general principle that your time cannot be not used for capitalist reproduction. Yeah, that's right. And it's... The, um, and it's... Um it's interesting because uh, that seeps into sort of people experience that in a personal way. When you're not working, it's depressing. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting contradiction. You know, if you're not working, you're looking for jobs, it can be really depressing and, and anxiety producing. People are always like, oh, what do you do? And your answer has to be, well, I'm not doing much at the moment or I'm looking for work. And that's a, a sort of depressing thing. And the wage, the labour ideology is a particularly pervasive and powerful one. And one of the things, if we want to change society, we're going to have to overcome. Um yeah, uh, which uh, is um, sort of particularly interesting. It sounds like you seems like you've got a quote to read out here. Oh yeah, no, I, was, I just found the quote from Inventing the Future. Where they say, increasingly, the welfare state is becoming little more than an institution designed to deploy the surplus population against the working class. So that's um, an important nuance to this: the the discipline of the working class via the surplus population is mostly um, achieved through the working through the welfare state. Um, so. Yeah, through the idea of workfare or free labour or working for the dole, basically. Um, and that's another way in which uh, wages are kept low um, by display, distilling this norm of work among everyone. Um, turning They do mention turning people with disabilities into potential workers um, and also the surveillance of people um, who are... Uh, you know, on, on benefits and the constant feeling that, you you know, while you might be getting um, money from the state, you're t it's certainly not, you know, that's tied to an expectation and your time, your time is not your own and they're watching you. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, you have to go to work meetings and employment service meetings and things like that. Mm. But then it's also working, uh, one of the sort of other interesting things is that the way that capitalism marks, one of the things that he writes a lot about is alienation. Mm. Uh, that you separate, you know, in basic terms, um, there's this sort of innate human spirit um, and this your innate creativity and things like that. And the c current way that capitalism uh, 
uh, controls your time and your wage labor um, and the way that you have to that you're paid for your labor time and there's a certain period of time that you're producing things um, that have no connection to you is incredibly alienating mm. you're alienated from your creative spirit in some ways um, whether that's because it's meaningless work and bullshit jobs the way graver talks about or whether or not you have no control over what uh, over what you're producing mm. um, not even aware often you know what what you're producing where that goes um, uh, and that is an incredibly uh, Marx's terms alienating experience um, uh, what's um, uh, what, what's important or interesting about that is that has a whole bunch of flow-on ramifications and the way your time is defined often leads to high rates of stress and anxiety mm. and mental health illness and physical injuries and things like that. Um, and uh, w- uh, what's often remarked upon... Um, uh, What's often remarked upon is that the mental health issues and the stress that that causes and the way that the time is controlled. Mm. And so, you know, when people have holidays or mental health days mm. or days off, that is to recover from your the current way that capitalism controls your time and your work. It's a miserable existence. And what's one of the fascinating things about ideology, um, really interesting things about ideology, is it is it forces us into a situation where work and la- wage labour are mind-numbing, alienating, depressing, anxiety-producing, stressful, uh, miserable existence. But the converse of not working is also that. That under the current ideological and social way that we, ideological constructs and the social social and economic way we organise society, there is is currently no individual escape from that. Mm, Keyword on individual. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, And uh, so David Graeber talks a little bit about this, this, this fact that, like, even if you're in a job where, say, um, you could easily get your work done in one or two days um, and the rest of the time you just sort of sit around, um, you do kind of, they either give you make work, made up tasks to fill the time, which obviously are serving no purpose, or maybe you just sit around look at checking Facebook until you finally get something to do. Um, lots and lots of those jobs out there, I'm sure most of us are familiar with them and or have worked them. Um And he points out that, like, on paper, this seems like a good deal, right? Like, you're getting paid probably a pretty healthy salary to sit around all day in an office um, or maybe even get to work from home, uh, not doing very much. Like, it seems like you've won. You're getting paid to do nothing. But people who do these jobs report incredibly high rates of stress, um, depression, anxiety. Like, he refers to it as spiritual violence. It just takes a toll, um, not only having to... Um, not only that your time is not your own, even if you are checking Facebook, you know that, you know, you're not doing that. You're not really free to do that, so to speak. You're doing it under the radar. But also the the um, doing ma- kind of doing made up work is a particular kind of psychic <laughs> torture. Um, it, I think there was, he quotes Dostoevsky who says like, you know, in the prisons, in the labor camps, um, we didn't actually do use, anything useful. Like doing useful labour would have made us feel sort of okay. We, you know, we we broke rocks into pieces, or you know, we we dig, dug holes and filled them in, and that was considered to actually be a, a much worse form of torture than doing um, hard labour that was useful in some way. Um, so yeah, there's a whole like spiritual um, or emotional component to this. I think uh, that I think most people are familiar with. Maybe it's time for another uh, song before we come back and talk some more about this. Um, 
That was Dolly Parton with 9 to 5. We got a lot of listener appreciation for that one, uh, including a listener who said we should have played nothing except this song nine, 9 to 5 times over the course of the show. Is that allowed? Uh, no. <laughs> I agree, but not allowed, unfortunately. Uh, if you have any more song requests, we'd love to hear them. Um, text them through 0420 uh, 626733 or you can call us 32521555 uh, while we're playing a song. Um so, yeah, if you hadn't figured this out yet, we are talking about the politics of time this morning on Radio Reversal. Uh, and we had just kind of started talking about the um, the spiritual or emotional psychic violence of not having your, your time not be your own. Um, but that, Max also pointed out that the way our, kind of our society is structured and the expectations and rules that we set up for ourselves mean that if you decide not to work, uh, that itself is also very depressing, boring and... Um, yeah, it's stressful, really, being told, you know, your your worth is tied to your ability to get uh, paid for your labour. Um, so is there, what else should we talk about? <laughs> well, I think um, we sort of talked about the fact that individually there's no really way to escape that. The implication being that there is there is ways and, and ways over history where time has been fought and won over. We sort mm. of alluded to it in the 19th century mm. um, and all through the 20th century organised labour one of their primary fight up until probably just the post-World War II period. Um, the fight was over the working day. Uh, and what's really interesting, um, actually, is that for a long time, the five-day working week was only ever really like a an interim measure. And actually, there was dreams mm. of four-day and three-day working week. Yeah. Um, and... The, what's um, We're sort of talking more about the sort of like political economic underlying political and economic reasons why time is organised the way it is in society uh, and, you know, that labour produces value and things like that. But what, And we sort of I alluded to one of those sort of like underlying contradictions in capitalism and one of the major underlying and probably one of the sort of the defining contradictions of capitalism um, uh, that Marx identified in this small little section called Fragment on Machines in the Grunrisse mm. uh, is... Uh, we sort of alluded to it before, which is that capital always wants to invest in fixed capital to reduce the cost of labour. And in this instance, at the moment, it means the rise of machines, automation, um, ways, uh, anything from, you know, uh, self-service checkouts at Coles mm. um, to uh, artificial intelligence, um, additive manufacturing, um, very advanced machines and ways of organising labour that increasingly are making work, paid work, irrelevant. Mm. Um, but there's a serious contradiction in society in that way because uh, if the defining way that you get the resources you need uh, to live your life mm. is by paid work, but work and the the size of the surplus population, the population that capital doesn't need to, re- to produce value is increasing, mm. um, you're running into this really s- serious contradiction and it has a whole bunch of follow-on effects. If capital capitalism relies on people consuming and buying things and driving the economy, the as the number of people uh, who earn a wage that allows them to participate that in a, in a full to its fullest extent decreases, um, that means that the you know the rate of consumption drops. It also um, means well, I think David Graeber points this out as well that like a large population um, who don't work like once a surplus population kind of grows to a certain size and they aren't working. Um, 
and uh, you know they have time to kind of think about their lives outside of employment, like that is going to lead to some social unrest, which uh, is also like obviously not in the interests of um, capitalist society. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, um, and the underlying point, and let's put it as simply as possible. Um, the contradiction right now is that the way capitalism is developing and technology is developing is we need less and less people to reproduce our lives and reproduce the things that we need to live and, re- and reproduce technology. Um, and that's running into a problem with the way that capitalism is organised. Um, and because so this speaks... As, sorry, as well, I mean, I also read a, a thing a while ago pointing out that, like, uh, it, whenever technological unemployment has been raised as a spectre in the past, and maybe it's a little more um, pressing this time because we really are like getting into some super advanced technology. But, you know, uh, when things were automated in factories and that freed up time um, for the work, like that meant workers could sp- had to spend less time doing a certain task, that wasn't that time wasn't given back to them and they shortened the workday by that amount. They just found something else for them to do. No, and this is where I sort of wanted to get to. This is about a question of power. Mm. Because if the machines and the automated machines remain under private ownership... Um, and um, within the relations of capitalism, they'll be fine new and innovative and very interesting ways to destroy and people's lives and make them miserable mm. and continue to control them in various ways. And before we mention that individually, there's no real way to escape this, but mm. there is a social and collective way to escape this. And this comes back to a question of power. And organised labour throughout the 20th century recognised this, that the only way to win a shorter working week is to use the collective power that comes with labour... Um, that comes with labour organising uh, collectively and whether that be withdrawing the labour or anything like that. Um, uh, and that's the way that you win extra time. Mm. Um, and that's the way that the five-day work week was won. That's the way um, uh, recently in Germany amongst the metal workers a four-day work week was won. Um, and, uh, but I think the underlying point to make is this is, this is a, a question of fighting capitalist power. Mm. Uh, and that um, and that no matter how many tricks you do, how many ways you find of tricking a timesheet, um, that there's no sort of there's no individual way of escaping a social socially constructed um, or a sort of economic problem. Mm, totally. Welcome back to Radio Reversal. Uh, before Z-Lines, you heard One More Hour by Slater Kinney. Before that was Left Behind um, by Germ. Um, it is 11.06, so we're just into the second half of our show this morning on uh, the politics of time. Uh, Max, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, pretty good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, so I think we um, talked in the, a bit in the first hour um, about... Yeah, uh, like, you know, why we think about time the way we do, pointing out that that's a um, a very sort of socially constructed um, way of thinking about time, that other cultures think about time very differently. Uh, A listener said, in Indonesia, we have this concept called jam karet, rubber time. It means people, basically means people are constantly late and then they say, hey, time is stretchy, get over it. (laughs) Yeah, I discovered, I... um when I was doing my honours in Indonesian history, I interviewed some Indonesian uh, political activists and found that time was indeed stretchy in <laughs> terms stretchy. of arranging interview times. <laughs> uh, but I think the, the kind of broader point about um, the the difference between um, kind of pre kind of pre industrial ways of thinking about time versus post industrial was that um, before the advent of industrial capitalism, um, you know, society mainly thought about time in a, in, in a way that was 
task oriented. So however long it takes to milk a cow is, you know, that's how long it takes. And we don't have to milk a certain number of cows in a certain period of time. We just milk however many cows we need. Um, and then after, uh, you know, starting in even the 14th century and then suddenly after the Industrial Revolution, the, the idea of time is this kind of grid that we have to, we have to arrange activities within. Um, yeah, and also but, uh, one of the defining sort of features of efficiency in capitalism is labour productivity mm. and capital productivity and the way, how much value a, la- a labourer can produce in a certain amount of time. Exactly. So it's that difference between um, the example we cited before is buying, buying a pot from a potter or buying him as a slave uh, versus buying his time. Two extremely different concepts um, that, uh, yeah, like, you know, now we couldn't, we wouldn't think about buying a person, um, but equally back then they couldn't really conceive of buying someone's time. Mm. Um, So maybe um, a good way to set off the second hour then is talking um, about reclaiming time. We mentioned that struggles between labour and capital have really historically been focused on on time as, as the site of, of struggle that both sides are trying to, to take back. Um, so I wonder, like, what do you think our kind of contemporary politics of time should look like? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think uh, in the Australian context, uh, uh, we, the work ethic really, the concept of the worth, work ethic and labour really dominates um, contemp- uh, sort of recent contemporary and historical ways that the sort of broader left have um, thought about um, uh, labour struggles and things like that. And part of that is the underlying ideology uh, of the labour movement and the Labour Party in Australia, which was a concept, a theory known as labourism, which is essentially that the best, to put it short, basically that the best welfare is a well-paying job. Mm. Um, and that jobs and work are the way that we d- will ensure that everyone is able to live a good life um, uh, in Australia. And obviously that has some pretty s- um, serious ramifications um, uh, for the way that the left has thought about um, winning time. Not winning time, sorry, actually just winning a, a, a good life, um, notwithstanding the fact that it's quite hard to live a good life if the large majority of your time is spent at work, mm-hmm. in terms of what a t- um, in terms of what a politics a good politics of time would look like now, or what it should look like now, there's a there's a whole bunch of series of concrete demands that we can go into a little bit later. But maybe broadly and more philosophically, it's the concept that people that we you know to put it as simply as possible, we all only live once, mm. and um, uh, after that, depending on what you believe in, either it's just blackness and nothingness, <laughs> or um, uh, or or something else, but regardless, there's a the miracle that we're here and that we and that we're these creative beings that that source joy from a whole bunch of do- different things that we do in our lives, whether it's doing pottery, mm-hmm. um, whether or not it's playing sport, having a barbecue down at the park, reading a book, playing music, working in the garden, um, creating things, be, um, inventing amazing machines, and various things like that. Mm. Um, the underlying point right now is that the way our economy and society is organised, it denies the vast majority of people the time that they need to enjoy their lives and mm. make them meaningful. Mm. And in fact, it actively uh, prohibits that and controls them in ways. And um, actually, one of the things that Shonek and William talk about in terms of the work ethic, the ideological work ethic, is that there's an underlying assumption that for us to get something positive, we need to suffer right. in some way. We need to work hard. Um, it's even um, down to sort of like... Um, the way we think about, um, 
you know, we, we need to work for our benefits in some way. And even like the, um, it's really interesting, you know, um, the the big issue is a, you know, a great program, but it's interesting that we think that peop- homeless people mm. only deserve our money if they're like selling a magazine and doing some sort of work mm. um, down to what we've talked about in terms of the welfare system and having to work for the dole and things like that. Um, but one of the underlying things about that is that we don't, we sh- for some reason, humans don't have an innate don't have an innate right to some form of freedom to do get the, given be given the resources and time to do the things we love. And I think that's a key point, right? Like given the resources and times to do the things we love, not uh, which are um, meaningful and in many ways like um, kind of uh, I don't want to say productive, but like um, David Graeber makes the point in this book that um, this is a really good, the, the phenomenon of, of bullshit jobs and the way people feel about them is a really good argument um, against the the notion of, um, that often gets, brings up around a universal income, universal basic income, that if you gave people a UBI, they would just sit around being lazy all day. He says, well, actually people in bullshit jobs are doing exactly that. They're getting paid to sit around being lazy all day and they hate it. Like it, it, it goes against something like innately human to waste well you know waste time is another is is another like particular concept that's arisen from this concept the capitalist conception of time but to sit around essentially doing nothing with your life um uh just kind of letting it pass you by not taking interest in things you love things you're interested in um not producing anything not engaging with other people is profoundly depressing and, and spiritually um degrading and if you get, if people do have time and resources that they can direct themselves, uh, this you know it's, it seems extremely evident that it wouldn't just be people sitting around smoking bongs all day. Not that that's like this. Well, no, and we should demand the right would. to be s- like, sit around. That's and, fine, but yeah. a lot of I think the idea that human civilization would grind to a halt and human creativity would be snuffed out if we didn't have um, the wage relation is um, obviously untrue. No, it's one of the most powerful ideological things that people are innately lazy. And that if we let them bludge around on the dole all day, that nothing you know. It, the whole economy and society will grind to a halt, as mm. he said. Um, taking, yeah, and I mean, I take. There's two points I wanted to make. Firstly, on that one, um, that one of the my favourite bits about Marx um, is the concept of prehistory. That actually everything that has happened up until this point, and that the way society and the economy is organised, is relatively easily predict- predicted. You can cut a slice through any moment in history, and you can find that there's a class that's in power. Uh, that is uh, that is accruing the large majority of the surplus economic and uh, sort of productive surplus produced by society for themselves. Mm. There's a under, there's a class who ha- is dominated by the ruling class and is in some sort of subordinate and powerless position in relation to that. That there's war and conflict in relation to the distribution as a sur- surplus, notwithstanding the complexities of society more generally mm. around a whole bunch of other things. But there's some basic things that you can predict around the way society is organised dating back, you know, thousands of years. Um, but one of the remarkable things, um, uh, one of the remarkable things about uh, what Marx was talking about in terms of that small C communism, not the communism we saw in the 20th century, but that concept of the um, everything held in commons uh, and that our resources and our technologies distributed in a way that gives everyone the maximum time to live their enjoyable lives and not have to work to produce value, but actually just work to, that actually just didn't a chance to reproduce in lives, is that that is when history begins. Mm. And precisely because humans are creative beings. Mm. They love to be creative and do things that are interesting and, and uh, create technologies and and um, uh, be given 
allowed to put the seven billion minds on this earth towards creating some sort of better society. Mm. And actually, one of the crazy things about the way our society in terms of time is organised is that, as Graeber sort of points out, the vast majority of people are forced to do things that um, are completely meaningless mm. or things that could be done by robots mm. or things that don't necessarily even need to be done. Mm. Um and actually, if we unleash, and right now there's a, there's a very small layer of academics and like professors and sort of an intellectual class that get a chance to do anything borderline creative, and even they are controlled in various ways. Mm. But and that's that's a small percentage of the population. But you know, if we get the next six billion people and they get a chance to do that, what? How would society and the and change? Mm, I think it is completely unpredictable. Yeah, I think that's to me one of the most interesting and underexplored um, currents of Marxist thought is a focus on really the, on individuality, on creative human flourishing, um, new ways of relating to one another, and kind of unprecedented sovereignty over oneself, uh, which you know you don't often associate with with Marxist thought, but. Um, it's a new. It's not you know the neoliberal kind of individuality. It's um, something like based on the idea of a, a common good. Yeah, and this is one of the great ironies actually of neoliberalism. It talks about creativity and um, freedom and individual freedom, but actually it's one of the most conformist and um, uh, uh, depressing and sort of dominating ideologies. It mm. forces people to live in a certain way. It forces everyone to define their lives by the sort of work that they do, mm. and actually it removes a whole bunch of resources and things that allow people to actually pursue their real individuality. Mm. And, in fact, the distribution of resources equally and the distribution of time and power equally far more like is a far more pure form of enlightenment, um, individualistic ideology. It allows people to pursue their own individuality. And I think it's like this notion of freedom, right? There's different ideas of freedom. It's either freedom to or freedom from, yeah, uh, right. to put it very bluntly. But uh, on that note and on about um, yeah, what kind of having more time and more security gives us the power to do, I read a really interesting article from the New York Times, um, which was, I think, a couple of... Oh, no, it was only last year. Um, so it's about... Um, uh, kind of an, well, I, th- I see it as an illustration of how economic systems can fundamentally change social relations. Um, it's a comparative sociological study of East and West Germans conducted after reunification in 1990, found that Eastern women had twice as many orgasms as Western women. Um, so, and then the New York Times article goes on to say, um, consider Anna Decheva from Bulgaria, who was 65 when I first met her in 2011. Having lived her first 43 years under communism, she often complained that the new free market hindered Bulgarians' ability to develop healthy, amorous relationships. Sure, some things were bad during that time, but my life was full of romance, she said. After my divorce, I had my job and my salary, and I didn't need a man to support me. I could do as I pleased. Mr. Chaver was a single mother for many years, but she insisted that her life before 1989 was more gratifying than the the stressful existence of her daughter who was born in the late 1970s. All she does is work and work, Mr. Chaver told me in 2013, and when she comes home at night, she is too tired to be with her husband. But it doesn't matter because he is tired too. They sit together in front of the television like zombies. When I was her age, we had much more fun. So <laughs> it was... No chicken well, well. Yeah, but no, it's a really a, interesting point that... Yeah. Um, and this is... Uh, uh, Shernick and Williams talk about this inventing the future, the concept of synthetic freedom. Mm. It's a freedom that it's con- socially constructed. And actually one of the ironies of neoliberalism it's one, is that while it talks about the concept of freedom from and freedom from controls, actually it's one of... It, it restricts people's material freedom. Mm. It restricts the material resources, and that includes time, although it's not a material resource, it's an abstract resource. Nonetheless, it's a material resource under capitalism. It increasingly restricts that to fewer and fewer people. And I think that's what I was wanting to get at 
actually in terms of the second point I wanted to make was that one of the one of the underlying and enormous failures of large sections of the left. Um, uh, and if you, I, I was going to say the Labor Party, but it's really hard to include them in the left. <laughs> we need to do a, po- a show on whether what the left is yeah, because yeah. it'd be weird to be on the same side as some of those goons. Um, but uh, is that we we, nev- we never we never they always talk about jobs or well-paid jobs or cost of living or health and education. Fine, but that people don't want them in on of themselves. Mm. That is not the reason that people want certain things. Um, people want certain things because they're given that gives them the synthetic freedom, mm. the materials that they need to go and pursue a meaningful life, mm. a creative life. Mm. Um, and we need to recapture. There's this, um, and maybe it's partly as to do with the work ethic, but there's this um, sort of um, stultifying um, concept of seriousness mm. that comes uh, with sections of the left that always eschews actually what people want is joy and creativity and time. Mm. Um, and that's one of the really um, um, interesting things. It, it, it's funny because that quote from the interview about East German women, arguably people um, in modern Germany are less free than the, the women that lived under mm. East Germany. Notwithstanding, and, you know, we're not saying return to East Germany, but there's a certain set of economic freedoms that were given. Actually, yeah. in the other was free universal childcare. Yes, exactly. And and uh, they talk as well about, you know, if you went on maternity leave, your job was held for you, you were paid, you never had to worry about money. And she says, you know, it was... Um, I don't think she uses the word freedom, but she says it was more gratifying. They had more fun. Mm. Um, and that, to be honest, I think is more important. Like I was reading a study yesterday um, about what people want out of public services uh, that was done by the Royal Society of the Arts, um, a UK organisation. And they say, well, you know, there's a lot of talk about choice, like people want choice. That's a neoliberal dictum of you know, people want choice in public services. But we found that actually people, like, <laughs> they don't particularly care about having a choice if they can have a good local school and hospital. In fact, they'd rather not have to like compare all these different service providers they just want well-funded quality services so they can get on with the rest of their lives um so maybe we'll leave you to ponder some of that while we play another track and then we'll um come back and talk a little more about about contemporary um radical left ways to think about time and reclaiming it uh this is a new track by a local band tape off it's day in day out it's uh, 11 21 and you're listening to radio vessel and four that was Day In, Day Out by Tape Off. It's 11.24, just ticked over to 11.24 on a Thursday morning here on Radio Reversal. We're talking about the politics of time. Um, irony that we have to fit all this into two hours. I feel maybe to be you know, fully on board with our show this morning, we should have as much as we, time as we want. But <laughs> sadly, the 4 Z grid does not <laughs> confine to... Um, Capitalist more, sellouts. Uh, yeah, more elastic ideals of time. Uh so Max in the st- is in the studio with me this morning um, and we've been talking kind of about um, ways to conceptualise of time or, yeah, uh, and particularly like radical left ways to think about time and reclaiming some of our time. Um, so I, I wanted to pose a, a question um, to you, Max. Um, so what about like, so what about political movements? You know, we're, we're having these political movements to like gain more time, um, but kind of uh, paradoxically in doing so that these take up a lot of our time in fact and they are you know they require labor that perhaps we wouldn't like to be doing in an ideal world um, is this like a kind of paradox that is uh, we can't overcome or what do you make of that yeah it's an interesting question I mean uh, in the first instance I think time is one of those like for me time is one of those useful uh, like 
ways of constructing a new left modernity, a mm-hmm. new left ideology, um, around which like we claim that things like a universal basic income or a four-day work week, one of the primary things they do is give us more time and resources in that synthetic freedom mm. to do the things that we love. Um, with regards to um, that question, I think I think one of the um, one of the useful things that um, one of the most important things that left movements need to be is strategic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're operating in a world that is dominated by capitalism and by a, a, a system um, and a series of forces, also the state, um, various states and political parties that operate at national and international levels and operate with enormous amount of power. Um, and um, in that instance, we need to understand, and, and much like the labour movement did in the 20th century, um, and actually various uh, women's and feminist movements did around unpaid labour, um, uh, and ironically enough, wages uh, for housework, mm. um, sort of S- Silvia Federici um, uh, s- sort of stuff, um, is that how do we compete with that? Mm. And probably, and yes, absolutely. In the short term, that means um, that means hard work, mm. um, uh, and that means organising institutions and political movements and social movements. That means some sort of work. Um, but what's really interesting about that is it's not often it's not paid work. Mm. It's work that is actually incredibly meaningful to the people that do it. And this is actually one of the things: these political movements and social organising and this organising that scales up to national and international levels and is strategic and and works out ways to build power and compete with the power that is trying to crush and destroy us. Um, is uh, people talk about the joy and the love of it, mm. um, and it actually is incredibly meaningful. And I think part of that is because this is the thing. We shouldn't compare paid wage labour with the work of building a social movement or building a political movement and things like that. Mm. And one of the primary things is is because it is not alienating work. Mm. One of the important things about sort of Marxist theories of work is that form of alienation, which is that you are being paid for your labour time, that wage labour is a distinct social phenomenon, social and economic phenomenon, distinct from other types of small W work. Mm. Um, And... Actually, it's that meaningless work. It's that work where a capital controls you, and where you're producing surplus value. And when your uh, your val- your t- labor time is defined by um, where your labor time is defined by the amount of uh, the, the, the working day and the working week, but also how much you're paid for it. Um, uh, and distinct from that is work with your, you know, working with comrades and working with people and building political movements and mm. things like that. I think it would just be cut, like it would be wildly unrealistic to suggest that somehow you're able to build a, a, a political movement without doing some sort of um, uh, doing some sort of work. But that's not to say that like sometimes that work is hard, of course. But but building political movements is hard and building power <laughs> is hard. But often it's very meaningful and enjoyable, and the yeah. people that are involved in it love it. I think um, I was being a little bit of a devil's advocate in posing that question because I know it does come up. But um, you know, my own take on that is is that people don't necessarily the goal is not necessarily to for more time per se, but for more meaning, like to be able to fill one's time with things that that do give meaning and. I think political organising is certainly one of those things. Um, I read an interview recently with Sylvia Federici, where <clears throat> actually because you mentioned her, and she said that, like, you know, the kind of politics where her basic argument, I think, was that utopian politics is sad politics because I mean your goals are so far away. But to me, I actually disagreed. I didn't. I don't find utopian goals sad. In fact, quite the opposite. I think they're the only things that you know that present real meaning and real hope. Um, and you know, to to 
to instantly assume that they that utopian goals like for instance um, working less or getting a UBI are far away and unachievable is to undermine them from this from the start universal basic income you yes, that sorry I mean. yes <laughs> universal basic income so I actually wanted to talk a little about the universal basic income and what um, how that maybe changes the the relationship that we have with money with work with time um, because it's I mean I think as well we've talked a little before um, on the show maybe about the idea you know wages for housework um, and the idea of being paid for domestic labor because you know that is labor that reproduces capitalism for sure and the unpaid labor of mostly women um, keeps the economy going uh, but to me like, and, and so there's been some talk of, of conceptualizing the UBI as like a wages for housework sort of thing but in fact I think it's it's one of its key um, components and the reason that it has to have this to, to be able to work, to be able to change rela- um, economic and social relations in any major way, is that it's not tied to any kind of work. Um, would you agree? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it, one of the fundamentally most important things about a UBI is it decouples yeah, exactly. um, income from work. Mm. That, that actually, It's the most powerful form about it, especially if a universal basic income is enough... Um, is enough to live on without having to do any other supplementary work. Mm. It's a really important point. It's a, Basic here means an income that allows you to live a life without having to work. So um, your, your time is really your own in, in a way that, you know, neither work nor being on welfare nor even working in a job where you don't have to do much, as we've talked before um, over the last hour and a half, um, none of those things afford any real freedom over one's time. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's a demand that exists within capitalism because it, you are given money, the money commodity, and you're asked, and it has to be enough to be able to purchase other commodities, mm-hmm. including housing and rent and food and other services that you need to get on and live a li- give your live your life. Um, the other really obviously important demand, in, coupled with the universal basic income, is a four day work week, mm. um, and that's about recognizing that the amount of, as we said before, the amount of work that we need to do to reproduce society is decreasing and actually what we should be doing is sharing that work around uh, more broadly in society, the productive work that needs to be done. That actually reduces underemployment but also um, uh, also reduces stress and things like that. And actually, as an aside, it's really interesting, a friend just sent me a study from New Zealand where a firm trialled a four-day work week and this is a, this is a capitalist firm la- labelled it an unmitigated success. Mm. Um uh, they cited uh, huge increases in stress. Um, uh, decreases in stress. So increases, decreases in stress and various, like other whole bunch of other social indicators and things like that. Um, yeah, uh, universal income, if you really dig, dig into it, has a whole bunch of other amazing ramifications um, around synthetic freedom and things like that, um, where they've trialled it in various... I think they trialled it in a small Indian village and they found that actually the village pulled their resources to mm. do things like repopulate the fish in their lake. Um, they had a lot more time to go in, and resources to go and um, uh, sort of uh, revegetate whole areas of their village and that made it a far more, you know, like productive and interesting place to live um, and an enjoyable place to live. Um uh, and this is why it's very interesting. Like the left, when we're talking about time, it always comes back to being given the resources. Mm. Like it's not just like it's not just reducing the working week. It's being because that's sort of useless if we live in a society where you need to purchase commodities mm. to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think coupled with universal basic income, we need to be talking about other things like universal guaranteed housing, mm. um, universal basic services is another way of thinking about it as well. Making sure that we get electricity and internet and public transport for free. Mm. Making sure that we're getting housing for free. 
essentially that we recognize as a society, those are the basic things that we need everyone to live a good life and have the time to live a good life. Um, and sort of, you know, universal basic income is coupled with that. And and in terms of those sort of um, the idea that those demands are somehow unrealistic or we shouldn't be making those demands because they're, they're sort of so far off in the future, um, if we don't make them, we can't describe the sort of future and life that we want to live and the politics that we're building towards. And one actually one of the things that the right has dominated recently, hegemonically, in the, winning, the, uh, and for lack of a better term, the debate around ideas, is that when we think of modernising or modernity or, um, or like, the future, the future is this depressing place. Like, often we think of it as apocalyptic climate change has destroyed everyone's lives. It's a, The whole world is a fireball. We're all working for Google in some like weird sweatshop factories um but one of the important things is winning that concept the winning those making constructing a new common sense where things like universal basic income and a four-day work week and universal social housing are demands that everyone understands that we're working towards Mm. and that actually unifies and builds a powerful political movement who's confident about a set of demands that they want to change society um you know at a basic term the people with a plan win yeah in both in your workplace <laughs> and in political movements and various other things. Um, and um, having a convincing plan that speaks directly and materially to people's lives while also getting them to imagine a future they could have if we work collectively together to fight back against the forces stopping us from having it at the moment um, uh, is one of the, like a crucial strategic thing that we need. Mm, I agree. Um, the question of futures and utopia is a really interesting one and one that um, Shonek and Williams go into a lot further in Inventing the Future. Um, which I recommend if you haven't read it. Uh, and they point out that, yeah, the, that, that the, fu- the future has historically been the terrain of, of, of the left, like the ideas of, um, you know, beautiful collective utopian futures. Even the Soviet um, sort of uh, preoccupation with space travel was part of that, the idea of a technologically advanced future. There, where, and I think they talk about Star Trek as well, um, you know, where technology is advanced to the... To the point where material plenty is 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 no longer in it, like providing lots of um, enough food and and housing and shelter and everything you know resources basically to everyone is is um, extremely plausible and is in fact easily done uh, where no one has to suffer because um, they don't have enough uh, where you know new forms of relation sexual and social relations can like flourish um, all of those things were you know have historically been thought about as as left wing ideals. Um, and in fact, you know, we're at that point now in a way, like our t- technological capacity to end poverty is, we could easily do it tomorrow. Like it's never been greater. Um, and win leisure and yeah, luxury. Exactly, That's the thing. Yeah. And like, and uh, you know, we're not talking about olive green overalls <laughs> or buying the same can of tomatoes in plain packaging. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, oh, I don't know. Like, I think there's something to be said for the tyranny of choice, <laughs> like in tomatoes. And, but, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, no, but I think this is a fundamentally crucial, right? Like, we're talking about an unleashing and a flourishing of individuality. Mm. Um, and, that the, uh, and, in fact, that the conformity, when we're talking about conformity, we're talking about capitalism and in capitalist society. And it's a false choice. It's not a, like, what we want is real choice, the ability to pursue, the ability to choose in, like, in real terms what our, we want our life to be. Mm. Um, which is something that we're denied at the moment. There was a good article in Jacobin, um, which I'll just quote from before we go for another quick um, song break, but it's about um, human nature, the idea of human nature, and basically arguing that although it's human nature is usually used um, by 
right-wing people to say that, you know, communism will never work or whatever. Capitalism is a, some kind of inherent expression of um, human nature, which is greed. Um, so this author um, argues that, well, you know, socialists and people on the left should be embracing this idea of human nature and saying, um, no, it's human nature to want to live a good life. It's human la- nature to want to be able to access all these basic things that we need to enable us to kind of live our lives and do things that give us meaning. Um, and they say, to quote, uh, you believe that the average human being should not be forced to live impoverished, stunted lives because you impute to the average human being certain unshakable interests, being fed when hungry, quenched when thirsty, free when dominated. Consider the glorious socialist invocation, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. That's a universal, universal injunction. And why is that compelling? Because we all know that nobody likes being in chains. The slogan is not, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, unless in some cultures people like being in chains, in which case we demand that those people be allowed to keep their chains. So to me, that's a, a lot of this has to do with time, although it's not, inher- um, not explicitly mentioned. A lot of it does have to do with time, with having enough time, with being able to pursue what's meaningful as a, as a fundamental, unshakable human interest that perhaps you know, left politics can, can learn or can take on board in future. Um, so we are going to have a quick uh, break for a track. Um, oh, I just got a song request, but I don't have time to search for it now. Sorry, I'll try and play Freedom of Choice by Devo after this one. Um, but for now, this is Wasting My Young Years by London Grammar. It's 11.38. You're listening to 4 Z. Uh, it's 11.42 here on Radio Reversal. We're just coming into the last little segment of our show this morning on uh, the politics of time. Um, if you have uh, enjoyed the show this morning, can I suggest subscribing to 4 Z? If you're not a subscriber already, um, you're missing out on some excellent glow of warm glows of community radio satisfaction so go to the uh, 4ZZZ website and um, hit the subscribe button you can easily subscribe to the uh, rate that you feel you know you can afford there's under 18 concession for passionate subscribers um, a range of options uh, to keep 4ZZZ on the airwaves um, and able to keep producing the content that you hopefully have been enjoying Uh, so I think um, Max is in the studio with me this morning talking about politics of time and we got a text um, during the song that said um, synthetic freedom is having the state control the outcome of the people, um, a sentiment which, with, with which I think we both disagree. So perhaps you, Max can respond to that. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It, it's, it's because it, 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 it's a... Um one of the sort of like byproducts of the sort of neoliberal age and the domination of neoliberalism um, uh, was this assault on um, very clever and sophisticated assault on um, the sort of welfare state, and it, it was the again it was this dominating presence, and in, and in many cases yes the capitalist state is is controlling and and domineering, but this is the the key point the capitalist state, um, and right now people's lives are. People only have one choice, two mm. choices, sell their labour or go a new start mm. for the vast majority of people. That's not a freedom. Mm. In no way is that a freedom. The only way that you get the basic things you need to uh, you need to live with life, and most people don't even get those basics anymore from working, mm. is that. Um, and the way that the state constructs, um, in fact, I would... That um, the way the more welfare that the state withdraws, the more things like housing, the more they put uh, restrictions on unemployment benefits, the more they refuse to introduce things like universal basic income, the more actually they're imposing an unfreedom on you. Mm. The more they're denying you the basic resources to live a good life. And here I think this is a really, there's a great quote from Shonak and Williams, um, 
where they say, as Marx and Engels wrote, it is possible to achieve real liberation only in the real world and by real means. Understood in this way, freedom and power become intertwined. If power is the basic capacity to produce intended effects in someone or something else, then an increase in our ability to carry out our desires is simultaneously an increase in our freedom. The more capacity we have to act, the freer we are. One of the biggest indictments of capitalism is that it enables the freedom to act for only a, smanish, a vanishingly small few. Mm. A primary aim of a post-capitalist world would therefore to be maximise synthetic freedom, or in other words, to enable the flourishing of all human of all of enable the flourishing of all of humanity and the expansion of our collective horizons. Achieving this involves at least three different elements: the provision of the basic necessities of life, the expansion of social resources, and the development of technological capacities. Taken together, these form a synthetic freedom that is constructed rather than natural, a collective historical achievement rather than the result of simply leaving people be. Emancipation is thus not about detaching from the world and liberating a free soul, but instead a matter of constructing and conf- cultivating the right attachments. And I think uh, the the quote that I read before about um, comrade Anna Ducheva from Bulgaria, who uh, you know had her her um, her middle or her first forty three years under under communism, and, and said you know like some things were bad, but my life was full of romance. I didn't need a man to support me. Um, I had my salary. I could do as I pleased. Um, and just saying, you know, pointing out the way her life was different was she used the word gratifying, fun, um, compared to her daughter's life, where you know she lives under quote unquote you know freedom, a more free society, a, a capitalist society. But she's too tired to do anything. She she and her husband just sit at home like zombies. Yeah, you know, I mean it's freedom. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a useful example. Uh, it's worth noting though that we don't want East Germany. No, no, I know. I'm just pointing out that like the state, you know, um, it, this wasn't the, a case of the state determining. Anna's social relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, it was you know her her the security and um, and stability she had, and and the fact that she had her job and she had a salary and she didn't have to worry about that, and she had more time, meant that she was able to pursue thing, uh, like a lot more personal freedom. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, yeah, I mean that it, that's true. Um, that's certainly true to an extent. East Germany uh, also crushed a whole bunch of other people's freedoms and the lack of yes. democratic <laughs> control over the way that. Um, uh, a proper direct democratic control over the way that politics and society function in East Germany was stultifying and depressing in a number of other ways. Mm. Um, and that's, again, not really what we're going for. But it, it, it's a useful... I think that that East German example is useful to the extent that it, it demonstrates the unfreedom that we live and right. the lack of freedom that we have in cap- yeah. under capitalism. No, I think... That both societies were unfree, but capitalism is just as, if not if if not more, unfree. Mm. Actually, one of the really interesting things to think about in terms of freedom is that we, we vote in elections, mm. but we don't vote how resources are distributed. We don't vote about um, how much it costs to buy a house. We don't vote whether or not what sort of work... Um, that our society does. We don't vote on who gets what resources and how we distribute resources. Mm. Granted, we talk, you know, some parties talk about taxation and others, but in direct terms, how we distribute housing and food and water and electricity. None of those things we get to vote on. Mm. Um, And I really want to come back to that that question about um, if somehow if the state provides universal and free housing and... Uh, universal basic income and mandates a four-day work week, that that somehow is a form of unfreedom. Mm. I find it fascinating. It's one of the it's one of the great 
depressing successes of neoliberal ideology that they're able to to talk about those things as the unfree things because surely the most unfree things are the state constructing a set of laws that force people into wage labor as the as their only option to reproduce themselves mm. yeah that's a good point i think we're going to play um another track and then maybe come back for our last summing up segment of the show this morning before we uh, pass over to brisbane line at 12 o'clock so yeah this was a subscriber request uh, freedom of choice by devo thanks for the request we're always really happy to play those so send them through if you've got any um it's 11:48 here on four triple z that was Freedom of Choice by Devo. Excellent subscriber request. Very thematically appropriate, and I enjoyed that one. Uh, it's 11.52 here on 4ZZZ, so you've uh, just got the last eight minutes of our show this morning on the politics of time. Um, and I will try and post a link. We've been talking about some books on the show this morning, um, David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs and um, Inventing the Future by Nick Schoenek and Alex Oh, and don't forget the Grunrisa by And the Grunrisa. <laughs> um, so we'll post... Riveting read. Yeah. <laughs> we'll post some links to those on, on Facebook should you want to explore any of these uh, topics further. Um, David Graeber, the book, the, the Graeber book is also based on an essay that David Graeber wrote in 2013 for Strike magazine called Bullshit Jobs, which uh, you can easily find online if you want to read a little more before you share out for the book um but yeah what, what do you what would you like to sort of end on max yeah i i think it's always fun to end on that sort of like form of utopianism that's um where we talk about you know where we could go um and what we're currently being denied basically mm. um and i think there's a whole bunch of sort of i, I mean there's ways to organize to win this and part of it is organizing Organizing, you know, uh, some sort of working class organizations, um, and whether they be unions or other sort of political parties or whatever they may be, that are going to be necessary social movements, um, uh, large scale social movements, large scale institutions that sort of uh, talk about these ideas and get them out into society. Mm. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch of tactics and important things that will need to be done to win uh, this sort of society. But it, it's also fun to just. Um, and, um, but it's also um, sort of fun to think about um, or ways of talking about this that I think start allow us to start winning that ideological fight. Mm. Um, and one of the, um, one I think the most important ones is how, not inefficient, but how um, resource-wasting capitalism is. Yeah. And that how much time it wastes in terms of wasting time, <laughs> the amount of time the waste people's lives and time. And one of the um, really interesting things is palliative care nurses say that one of the, you know, the biggest regrets that people have when they're dying is that they didn't spend more time with their loved ones. Yeah, no and one spend- ever says, I wish I spent more time at work. <laughs> no, and well, a lot of people say they wish they'd spent less time less at time, work. Less time, exactly. And so- I actually think that's one of the, we need to, uh, I think in terms of, out, we get outraged about a lot of things, but one of the outrages that should hopefully drive people into action mm. and are fighting against the way we currently organise society is that it takes the miracle of life and someone's life and destroys it over mm-hmm. 80 years, forces them to work, increasing stress and in poverty and in uncertainty, uh, and says that that is how 
you are go- that that is how we're going to define your life. That is how the current economic and social system is going to define your life. And the Labor and Liberal Party passed laws, whether it be restrictions on welfare, or whether or not it be restrictions on unemployment benefits, or whether or not it be labour laws, that it, that reinforce this, mm. and that we have a political we have a political class and a, a and a political and economic system that says to the vast majority of people, unless you have an enormous born lucky enough to be born in the right postcode with an enormous amount of wealth, that is how your life is going to be led. And I think um, we, you know, just to, for, for the sake of full disclosure, Max is the Greens candidate for Griffith in the upcoming federal election, um, although we, you know, we haven't been promoting his campaign or anything on this show. But I think it's interesting to me uh, that your campaign actually talks a lot about this stuff, about the good life, right? Yeah. And it's kind of jarring in a way to, to read that. You're actually not used to hearing about such... Um, emotional or human things in the in the context of politics usually you know you get political literature and it's about like schools and hospitals or it's about small business or it's about you know um, stopping immigrants or like whatever is the <laughs> is the issue du jour but no one or very few politicians seem to actually tap into what this what any of this means like well, the whole point of politics surely is whichever like direction you're kind of going in is a striving for a, a good life and that's mm. what people want um, and I think any kind of any successful political movement has drawn on some kind of deeply human instinct towards that uh, and not towards like more kind of technocratic centrist stuff. I, well, I think you could saw exactly what happened with Hillary Clinton when, um, you know, campaigners tried to, to try to be, tried to base themselves off that. Um, but to me, that's, that's the kind of key message that, yeah, any kind of political movement to reclaim time has to be about, yeah, has to tap into our humanity, which really, I think, you know, we started this show talking about how people understood time and, and how it's affected their lives. And, and that's key, I think. Yeah, that's right. And yes, um, and a large part of that of that campaign is um, trying to redefine the way we talk about politics, um, but also recognising who the enemies are. You mentioned immigrants, but it's mm. very important to say that, you know, what's explicitly who is denying us this. Mm, exactly. And it is a small ruling, ruling and wealthy class for whom the, the, the vast majority of wealth and power is in their hands. Um, and they keep it from everyone else and they deny everyone a good life. And, you know, things like health and education are important precisely because they allow us to live a good and meaningful life. And people often say that our emotions are secondary to serious facts Mm. and political language and that emotion in politics um, is is somehow uh, lesser. Mm. But that's precise. We want happiness and we want love and we want social connections. Well, I think it's the opposite. Like I mentioned before, I think Hillary Clinton's campaign is a perfect example of a totally bloodless, totally emotionless campaign. And in many ways, you can argue that that Trump's campaign was successful because it was incredibly emotional. It tapped into some really deep well of feeling in an obviously incredibly perverse and terrible way. Um, But nonetheless, like he reached people where she didn't. Mm. and there's a lesson there. Yeah, that's right. And, and as I mentioned before, around social movements and various other ways of building power, it's very, um, it's crucial that we build power in a variety of ways. And one of those is in politics. Mm. Um, and that I think, I suppose, uh, maybe it's a useful thing to finish on. I notice we've only got about a minute yeah. and a half Oops. Uh, left. Um, <laughs> Capitalist time constructions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, is that this is one of those crucial opportunities where... Um, uh, w- winning formal parts of formal political party probably does have to form some part of broader strategy around winning this contest um, 
and winning uh, winning power for the vast majority of people. Mm. Um, and why it's so crucial, as you mentioned, Trump, is that we're in this, and we've sort of talked before about this overlying contradiction between increasing surplus populations and automation, is that we're at this crucial moment, I think, in political and Australian history, where there is a, con- and as the sort of centre disintegrates, there's going to be a contest between the far right and the left around where society goes from mm. here. And what, you know, the far right are talking about is restricted immigration and racism and and singling out groups of people and demonising them and saying, you're coming here and taking our jobs and our resources. Or there's another side that says, actually, the world has abundant resources mm. and we can share them in a way that means that everyone is able to live a meaningful life, no matter your skin colour, no matter your gender, no matter which country you come from, no matter w- which war you're fleeing from that our country helps start. Um, and... Uh, it's now. I suppose the the sort of where I feel now is it's now or never. Mm. Either we go about and, and building this power now, or in five years' time, Pauline Hanson will be prime minister. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's an it really is an either or because neither the Labor or Liberal Party are going to be able to do this. And it means I suppose getting organising whether that be in social movements, whether that be in politics. But now is the time to start organising and mm. acting because that conflict over time, as we've been talking about, um, and how we define it. And how we win it is probably going to be the most the crucial political debate. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, we're completely out of time now. <laughs> um, but thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back next week um, with a show, I think, um, maybe on class politics. I'm interested in, in doing that one for next week. Um, but for now, stay tuned for Brisbane Line in just a few minutes. Uh, the track we're going to go out on is Whole 20 Years in the Dakota. It's a language warning on this one. Um, but thanks again for listening. You're tuned to 4ZZZ.